0: everyone, and welcome to the 14th episode of Slime Time, the official Dragon Quest, Dragon's Den podcast. This is Platy M3.
1: And this is Liam Land. Okay, so coronavirus health check. How's your
0: quarantine going? Ah, oh, it's pretty good here. Plenty of all the essentials. Um, I went to the grocery store today for a couple things, and I was quite puzzled by the stuff they were out of and the stuff they had. I mean, I'd heard about a lot of shortages, but meat? Tons of it. Chicken, beef, whatever. Maybe they just got a shipment in or something. The pasta aisle was uh, pretty well stocked, too, although uh, it was low a few days back. But I was a little surprised by some of the things they didn't have. Like, besides the obvious toilet paper and whatever thing, they had, like, no soap. None. Not laundry detergent, not dish soap, nothing. All that stuff was gone. And dryer sheets, gone. I mean, I guess if you're going to sit home, you might be doing laundry. Uh, even those little tablets for the dishwasher, all gone. And Ziploc bags, all cleaned out. I was very puzzled by some of the stuff that was all gone.
1: Yeah, we had a we had a shortage of um, potato chips in the in the Jersey area. So that seems to be <laughs> people are afraid that that they're not going to be able to get potato chips. So they just bought everything within the local area. <laughs> but well, he, you also wouldn't can never eat it. just one yeah right. you you actually wouldn't know there's a quarantine going on with all the folks hanging out on the local parks and there's still plenty of traffic driving around so it's kind of like business as usual for some folks that just don't give a shit <laughs> um,
0: yeah same thing here in florida you know there's kind of lockdowns kind of not but i think it was like three screens full of all the exceptions i was scrolling through with the neighboring county i was like Well, wow, that's pointless Basically, uh, stay at home unless you don't want to. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, there's all the spring breakers uh, spraying it to the rest of the country.
0: Yeah, that, that's some crazy video there, watching yeah. that.
1: Well, so anyway, <laughs> how's that for a transition? Anyway, yeah. uh, so so I had a long lost uh, memory come back to me recently. I was playing uh, NES games um, with my three-year-old on my, on my phone, and while playing the first Dragon Warrior game on NES that made reference to the Howard and Nestor cartoon strip. Um, there was a, there was sorry there's the the actual game uh, the first Dragon Warrior on NES makes reference to the Howard and Nestor cartoon strip that ran in Nintendo Power from the magazine's inception from 1988 through 1993. So just taking a step back in the cartoon, Howard was the bow tie wearing Nintendo game know it all who was actually based on Howard Phillips, the president of the Nintendo Fun Club at the time, and Nestor was the stubborn and impetuous video game playing teenager who was well. I guess he was based on all of us.
0: Basically, uh, Nintendo's passive aggression towards all of us? <laughs> well, it was the
1: 1980s, and and the comics would typically, typically play out uh, as Nestor cosplaying as a main character in a game featured in that month's comic strip. And uh, Howard gives the often confused Nestor real game strategy tips which Nestor then ignores and does his own thing, always landing him into some sort of trouble. So in Dragon Warrior NES there's numerous references in various towns like Garenham and Cole to people looking for Nestor, who is apparently lost in the game somewhere. Um, In Volume 10 of Howard and Nestor and Nintendo Power even had a Dragon Warrior comic, so we'll link to that in the show notes, but um, this particular Howard and Nestor Dragon Warrior comic strip was published in 1989, somewhere around the release of Dragon Warrior NES. So these were two mediums the game and the magazine that were then referencing one another
0: well this obviously wouldn't have been part of the 1989 localization and not in the original uh, dragon quest one for famicon
1: no yeah this is definitely a localization thing and not uh not not part of the original dq canon
0: okay interesting
1: so you may have seen our next guest on social media as a dragon quest promoter he's even worked with us in some fan marketing for some of our dragon's den contests Joining us tonight is a Dragon Quest Slime who's been traveling the world since 2015, spreading the word of Dragon Quest to fans throughout the West. Please welcome Westy Blue Slime to the party.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm Westy the Dragon Quest Slime.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Westy. It's great to be
2: here. I don't usually do interviews.
0: That's right. I guess this is your media debut. Tonight
1: we're going to be talking about the original idea for Dragon Quest IV.
0: Um, but before we do that, let's get to know our guest a little bit better. So, uh, Westy there, how did you get into Dragon Quest initially? Well,
2: first Hori Sensei drew a rough sketch of the slime, and then Toriyama drew the official design as we know today, which brought me into existence. But in terms of how I began my travels to spread the word about Dragon Quest in the West... Back in 2015, I was initially inspired by what the Dragon Quest marketing team under Kaori Takasu had been doing to promote the release of Dragon Quest Heroes. With Helix, the sign. I decided to take a similar concept and not only go traveling, but to keep my campaign going. I know Helix did sunset after the game promotion was over, but with Westy, I could keep the traveling and promoting in the series going on as long as possible.
1: What are some of your favorite or least favorite games in the DQ series, mainline spin-offs. Well,
2: I'm a little biased toward rocket slime, of course. I'm partial to Dragon Quest IV's chapter-based story, but not many Goomans know I'm actually a Dragon Quest 10 slime. I take pride in this because that's one of the biggest challenges to marketing stateside. It's an ongoing campaign that never really ends until we see it here in the West.
0: Any games in the Dragon Quest franchise that you haven't gotten around to playing that you'd like to?
2: I'd like to try Dragon Quest Walk someday, but I suppose I'd need legs for that.
1: Have any favorite or least favorite characters or monsters?
2: Master Dragonlord said I'm to say he's my favorite, or he'll crit me so hard I'll gain my own experience points. I'm not really sure what that means, but it doesn't sound pleasant. My least favorite monster is the Slime Knight. It hurts to have someone riding around on top of all the slime.
0: What about some of your favorite mechanics in DQ games, like monster collecting, job classes, casinos, and such?
2: Any slime-related mini-games. Slime bowling, slime races. And I'm still waiting for the Olympic Committee to respond to my request to make slime curling an Olympic event.
0: Well, you now have an extra year to do so.
2: Yeah, I suppose I do.
0: Do you have any favorite
1: official Dragon Quest merchandise or stuff made by fans?
2: Besides myself? There are some pretty nifty slime underpants. I like the Bring Arts figurines, but they're a little bit pricey for a slime salary. (laughs) Out
0: of my range, too, buddy. Now, out of all the places that you've traveled, do you have a favorite moment?
2: I like to go to Disney World in Florida. The snow mountains of Killington in Vermont had amazing goos. I got to go to Vegas with Wootus, and I just got back from Hawaii. So look forward to more photos coming soon. One of my favorite places to visit, of course, is Japan. I tried to organize a protest for more Dragon Quest in the West outside of Square Enix headquarters in the Shinjuku area of Tokyo. But no one showed up, so it turned into a one-slime protest.
1: <laughs> I'd imagine that would happen if you'd advertise that in Japan. What DQ fans or denizens specifically have you met in real life before?
2: Oh, I've met dozens of fans on my travels and at conventions. More than I can really say. But to name a few, Hendy, and Mishi, and Rudis, and Jippy Flying Star, Avarian, RPG Wizard, Soma QZ, you and Platty, oh, and Hori Sensei once.
0: Wait a minute. Is he a denizen? Well, he's he's an
1: honorary one. But yeah, tell us about that. I got to meet him at the same convention. That was the uh, 2018 Anime Expo in L.A., right?
2: That's the one. It was inspiring to meet my maker. We did have a slightly awkward exchange, though. He asked if he could sign me, and I had to tell him no thank you.
0: <laughs> really? <laughs> not
2: that I wasn't honored. I'm not a bad sign. I'm just not really a face.
0: Maybe you should have just gone for the tramp stamp.
1: (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine that now. Well, Westy, thanks for visiting us.
0: Of course.
1: Tonight, we're going to talk about the original idea for Dragon Quest IV. It's a long tale involving quite a few famous names and brands in the JRPG universe, but alas, it never came to fruition. Thank goodness, because the DQ4 we got is one of my favorite games in the series.
0: Oh, for sure. But we're not here to reminisce about Ragnar McFucking Ryan and Healy today. Not out there to puff puff hour. We're here to talk a bit about the original idea for Dragon Quest IV. One that didn't come out as Dragon Quest IV, but it's a little footnote to many different games' histories. Dun dun dun. So today we're going to talk about the tale of the first draft of Dragon Quest IV. It starts um, back in the 80s with the completion and the release of Dragon Quest III in February of 1988. It was that uh, big release that spurred the whole rumor over here that uh, in the United States fans have talked about for years that, oh, the Japanese government passed a law that Dragon Quest could only be released on the weekends over there because so many people were taking off of work and the lines, people were skipping school and whatever. Now, that has since been debunked, and it's not the case. But uh, what does seem to have happened, and I think Horry said this in an interview one time, that Enix was asked to start weekend releases because of how popular the game series had become, and they were like, it eh, doesn't matter to us, that's fine.
1: Did Nintendo Power have a picture of all the people lined up down the street for the, from the Dragon Quest
0: III release? they did i found that picture i'll have to um get it to just to put in our youtube version and uh, maybe we can link it in the show notes or something and tweet it out later it's a funny little uh, world news thing and reading it it's it's a sign of the times it's definitely a 1980s hey this is what's happening in news over in japan <laughs> for like for uh kids reading nintendo power well, obviously, Dragon Quest III was
1: popular in Japan, but it wasn't the first RPG released on their, on the uh, NES slash um, Famicom that mm-hmm. had job classes. The original Final Fantasy released in mid-December, about two months prior to Dragon Quest III.
0: Yeah, it, it came out in December 1987, um, and the original Final Fantasy was heavily designed by uh, this guy, uh, Kwazu. Was his last name? I'm gonna butcher his first name. It's Akitoshi, Akitoshi. Kawazu. Okay, and uh, Kawazu was mainly responsible for the battle system and some of the sequences in the first uh, Final Fantasy. He based a lot of these heavily on tabletop game, uh, the tabletop game Dungeons and Dragons, and um, the role playing game Wizardry. For example, enemies' weaknesses to elements such as fire and ice had not been included in Japanese RPGs um, on the Famicom up to that point. Kwazu had grown quite fond of these aspects um, from playing Western RPGs and he decided he wanted to incorporate them into Final Fantasy. And he really liked the player's option, since this was a role-playing game, and you're going to take a role. He wanted them to choose their own party members and classes at the beginning of the game. um, Because he said, quote, the fun in an RPG begins when you create a character. Interesting link here is
1: that Yuji, Hori, and Kawazu were roommates for a time in the early 80s. And despite working at two different companies, they were both very much in the same line of work and hung around in the same circle of friends.
2: Is that really true?
0: Definitely true. So, back to February 1988, Hory's just finished his big first trilogy of games, Dragon Quest 1 through 3, and based on obviously how well it's selling, he knows that this is going to become a thing. He's not done, he's obviously going to make a part 4, but the Erdrich Trilogy's done. So where does he go now? What does he do now? He, he's got kind of a blank slate, tons of creative freedom that he can do, um, but w- what's he going to do to freshen up the series? Well, unknown to him upon the release, but
1: discovered quite soon thereafter, was the useful glitch in Dragon Quest Three, where you could parry and then back up the same character and start attacking, yet still get the full benefit of blocking, too. This glitch got a bit stuck in, in Hori's head, and he began thinking about perhaps the whole battle
0: system could be played with, but realistically, how? Yeah, I mean, it's a good idea to change things up like that, and battle system would be de- something that, you know, you might want to look at. So one day he decides, ah, you know, let me call it my buddy Kwazu. You know, he he just got done with that Final Fantasy game, and uh, apparently it might be doing well. So he starts spitballing ideas off him, and they decide they need to meet up the next week. And they get together, and in the span of a few hours, they get this whole idea going for Dragon Quest IV. Um, now, one of the first things that Hori was insistent upon was keeping the... Um, HP MP system that he designed for Dragon Quest. I mean, he really wanted that MP system because Quazoo's Final Fantasy One had spell charges and spell levels, remember? Um, you started out as a white knight or something. You could cast, like, four level one spells. And you had to go buy them, too. Um, and, like, two level two spells if you were beginning white mage. And as you leveled up and you went to other towns, you could buy more spells, but... Unless you were leveling your mage, you couldn't cast them, or you couldn't cast them very much because um, you were low level. So as you leveled up, you could work your way up to like level 4 and level 5 hard-hitting spells, get those ones that purified you, the poison stuff and everything. But it was all this spell, you could only cast this one spell a certain number of times until you went to the end kind of system.
2: This is pretty much directly taken from old Dungeons and Dragons mechanics, like a lot of RPG elements at the time were.
0: Yes, exactly, Wessey. And Hori didn't like that spell change mechanic. So, Quazu had to build his Dragon Quest IV system around the ones from the previous Dragon Quest games with kind of one big radical change. I mean, he was given this freedom, so he had to use MP, but he wanted to figure out something different to do. He decided, you know what? Screw leveling up. We're not going to have this leveling up characters. Instead of having like fixed levels, like, hey, every so often we're going to go up this level and increase your attack and defense and whatever. um, All those stats can't go up at once. The stats were going to be increased based upon the actions that took place in the battle. If you wanted to get your warrior better at attacking with a sword, how would you do it? Well, you'd equip a sword and get better through using it. Um, If you wanted your magic to be better, more effective, deal more damage, heal more hit points... Then he built this system where, hey, if you just use it more, you'll get better at this. Basically, he went with the whole uh, practice makes perfect thing here.
1: I mean, it all sounds good because it plays like real life. The more times I sneak around and shoot rolls of toilet paper out of people's hands of bows and arrows, the better I get. And my, person, my personal agility stats increase, as does my aim. So soon I'll be able to put an arrow right through the
0: tubes. Mm, yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> well, that, that, it, it sounds like that makes a lot of sense. But the problem with this system is um, the thing that Quazu developed was pretty much broke as hell. Really? How so? Well, y- you could
1: target your own people for spells and attacks. You could attack your players, get them down to minimal HP, then cast heal spells. Often enough, max HP would go up after battles. And as one would expect, all near-death experiences make people stronger and more healthy.
0: Exactly. I mean, imagine a year from now, we're going to be like a race of superhumans coming out of this uh, whole coronavirus thing. Um, Probably not so much,
1: but it's it kind of reminds me of Fight Club a little bit, you know. (laughs) It's a bunch of people just beating each other up and getting stronger somehow.
0: Yeah, I mean, you build experience. Yeah. that. What <laughs> doesn't kill you makes you stronger. There Maybe he went got. with that kill motto there. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so one of the interesting things about that whole model, the game that he was developing for Dragon Quest Four here, was you know you it wasn't really a huge need to go fight a lot of monsters. You you could just fight yourself. I mean, you could go against, like, the easiest monster in the game, yep. but you could just keep wailing on yourself, <laughs> and, and you'd be awesome. I mean, you, you could just sit outside the level one town for a while, and an hour later, you'd be buff as hell and have people that could heal you all the way up and have yeah. 10,000 experience like, and be and, ma- and whatever.
1: level grinding.
0: <laughs> oh, man. So, I mean, now, Quazi would kind of take this idea and go with it later um, after this kind of didn't work out. Um, he went on to develop the Saga series of games. Uh, the first few would come over to the United States, interestingly enough, as Final Fantasy Legend 1, 2, and 3 um they were for the game boy i don't even think they were for the game boy color they were so early um then it would develop into the uh super famicom snes area as romancing sago one two and three uh the second one earlier this year zachary um yangus legendary bandit and i tried playing and that was an interesting game i kind of gave up on that after I started getting towards end game bosses because it had some of these weird mechanics in it you couldn't level it wouldn't matter you could keep getting better by doing certain things but also he went on to add like the bosses got better too so it wouldn't matter if you tried to fight the end boss at 10 hours into the game or 20 hours in the game that same level of challenge was there you just couldn't power level um, you always had to have a good plan for attack Oh, and next um, level.
1: And then just like the end boss would be just insanely difficult. There was no levels.
0: Yeah, oh, OK. All right. Yeah. You, you could grind, but you could get hit points and whatever. And I kind of ran into this. Um, they're actually still making saga games. They came out with one. It released in the United States just last year um, in December. Scarlet Saga Grace and got pretty good reviews as one of the kind of non broken ones um <laughs> cool battle system <laughs> i know it, it had to be like no, hey, non-broken what? yep <laughs> and it's even spurred like kind of copycat systems i was excited about ooh, five six seven years ago um to get this one game on the 3ds called legend of legacy and i really enjoyed it but i got to the end boss and, and i did okay you know i would use all these abilities random abilities would just ho- keep working like you'd be sitting there using your axe in battle and at the end of one battle is like hey guess what you learned a new axe ability i'm like oh cool well i got to the final boss in that game and i could get oh gosh i think i did it like 10 times i could get through his first form but when he transforms, forms wiped me out hmm. and after like four or five six times i'm like screw it i'm gonna look up where to go and whatever to do and watch a couple youtube videos on it and all the advice everything that was there they had all these abilities that I didn't have. I was like, okay, these are providing no advice. I don't have that ability. I can't do that. I can't do that. And I can't do that. And the thing is, I, I went and I spent like five more hours just grinding random battles to see if I could randomly have these abilities appear. Never happened. So that's so...
1: me. That's me in Quest of the Stars. I'm like, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this kind of system where you could just randomly learn stuff you could randomly not learn stuff you were at the ability and you know it's kind of like you're uh ability you're trying to get the uh your quest for the falcon sword it's all rng mm. it comes down to that so now um another same company then not Kwazu, but they they took this idea also with the game alliance alive um but they did add a feature behind into the game where you could actually build up it wasn't experience but it was like skill points and you could actually trigger an ability you could trigger use your skill points to buy a skill that made abilities trigger faster so that game I really loved Alliance Alive had some things that you could actually grind for it wasn't just randomness alright
1: so uh, getting back to Dragon Quest 4 um, besides the battle system what else was
0: radically changed uh, not much I mean Quazu stuck pretty much with Hori's ideas and they work together to make your standard fantasy JRPG of the time I mean you had this main four person party um, Firion, Maria, Guy, Leon they kind of drop in and out of the game uh, out of your party and there's five other party members that join for a time and leave um, brought a pretty big total you could have player controlled up to nine people not all at once but they were coming and going throughout the uh storyline and there was a typical dragon quest story of the party fighting back against the big bad guy who had descended into hell this dark realm and came back and was like, hey, cool, now I've got the power to take over the world. Ah, this this game sounds pretty decent. Why wasn't it turned into Dragon Quest IV? Ah, man, it was that battle system, which I just spent a little time lamenting on. Hori just didn't love it. He thought it was just a complete pile of shit. And therefore deserved to get booted back to Quazoo's first company and get called Final Fantasy. Well, Final <laughs> Fantasy II, that is. <laughs> so... Uh, I mean, Square at the time, they weren't going to look a com- mostly complete game in the mouth and just kill it. I mean, they'd had all this work done, obviously. And so, you know, they just did some little monster character and overworld sprite swaps. I mean, think of the game sizes back in the NES days. You're talking about like two megabytes, you know, replace A with B. And ta-da! Um, pretty quickly later in 1988, um, while well, Hori's back at the drawing board, ready to try to push himself to get out of Dragon Quest IV. Uh, a couple of years later, he, he, you know, they're releasing Final Fantasy two and, you know, not to waste everything that he'd put all this time and effort into uh, helping quasi develop what would become Final Fantasy two. But uh, he decided,
1: oh. nah. wait, 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 Final Fantasy two, the one with, with Cecil the with Dark Knight.
0: No, 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 no. You're thinking of Final Fantasy two in the United States. What I'm talking about is the Final Fantasy two that the uh, Japan got. Oh, right.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's the one we were talking about where you're beating up your characters.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the one that came out um, in 88 before Cecil even knew what the Super Famicom and what everything was. So
2: what do you mean? (laughs) Hori used some of the same plot
0: devices? Like I was saying before, Hori didn't want to throw away all these great ideas that he inadvertently passed on to Square. So uh, he, he had a lot of similarity here between some things that were in the game that he developed with Quazoo and what he put in Dragon Quest 4. I mean, Dragon Quest 4 began the Zenithian Trilogy, and we all know Zenithia is a floating castle up in the sky. Um, well, in Final Fantasy 2, the party flies with a dragoon on a wyvern, which is just another name for a dragon, to a castle that's being held up in the sky on uh, air on a cyclone. It's like inside a cyclone. They just, eh, let's take that dragon up there. Um... You know, the plot device of Dragon Quest IV is part going after Zaro, the Manslayer. Um, he had used his power, what he awakened Estorik to get the power of evolution so he can turn into a huge monster and conquer mankind, right? Well, circle back. That that idea came when he was working on Final Fantasy II, uh, where there was an evil empire that descended into hell. And, you know, that's something Dragon Quest always calls the Dark Realm. Or the Dark World or something. And Final Fantasy II, this guy goes down there and gains the power needed to transform into a big demonic form that can help him conquer the world. And let's not forget the whole act tempo mine scene in Dragon Quest IV. You know, that all came about because of what they were thinking about in Final Fantasy II. Because at one point, you need this mithril um, to make better weapons. So where do you go? Boom, boom, bum. Party makes its way to an occupied village called uh, Salamand. Saves the villagers, forced to work in the nearby mines by the monsters, and ta-da! They receive mithril. Not an air canister to float the uh thing, but, you know, going into a mine. That's totally straight out of FF2. Um, I'm not totally convinced here. Really? Mm-hmm. Those
1: all seem like pretty recurring JRPG tropes and scenarios. Mm, yeah,
0: well, smoking gun here. What if I told you to look at chocobos that were first released in Final Fantasy 2? Yeah, how does that prove anything? Oh, just go back and look at the Great Beak enemies from Dragon Quest 3 They're called beacons nowadays in the uh, newer translations. But these Great Beak things from the original Dragon Quest 3 they're basically big yellow bird heads on legs. That's all it was. Bird head, big beak, on legs. And, you know, like I said, Square was switching up things a little bit. They, they couldn't make everything look exactly like Dragon Quest um, or Toriyama's art. So... They make the Jokobos kind of look exactly like them, but with a bit of a body. Boom. And it's like the difference between a centipede and a millipede. I mean, you got a few more body segments, and there you got a new creature. But uh, that's how Jokobos came about. Great beaks from Dragon Quest Three, plus a little bit of a body.
2: Well, I guess that all makes sense. So, Hori didn't love it? How did it fare when it came out as Final Fantasy II?
0: Famitsu loved it. These, the three best games of 1988 in Japan were Super Mario Bros. 3, Dragon Quest 3, and Final Fantasy 2. I mean, look at those games. That's some excellent company to keep. I mean, Dragon Quest 4 came out a couple of years later in 1990, to great reviews too, and both series have gone on their merry way, coincidentally, kind of both ending up under the same publishing company when uh, Square Enix fucked up in the early 2000s, and uh, Enix had to pull them out of everything. But they—they're Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, they're both going on to this day, releasing title after title.
1: Okay, so full disclosure, everything we just talked about was completely true. April oh, Fools! Is...
0: Okay, so for those of you that made it all the way through this incredibly tall tale, uh, this is kind of what happens in my brain. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when I'm tasked with driving my entire family home from North Carolina overnight from spring break, uh, you know, 10 hours locked alone in a car with nobody else that is uh, awake and conscious. <laughs> these kind of things just start running together. But what's funny is when I got home and I started looking stuff up like this, all these names and dates and pretty much every single statistic we just talked about, 100% legit. Um, what's complete BS is any connection between Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy um, that we totally made up in that story. You know, other than Erdrick's Grave appearing in the North American version of Final Fantasy 1, there's really no connection between those games until the uh, creators of both the series and uh, Toriyama worked together to create that uh, Super Nintendo Snoozer Chrono Trigger. Hey, I like that one. Eh, maybe it had to be there in the 90s. I wasn't. <laughs> But, uh, also, as far as we in Wikipedia know, Hori and Kawazu were never roommates.
2: Ah, oh, but that could be good, right? Did anybody ask them?
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, if anyone could ask Hori and Kawazu if they were ever roommates and get back to us, we'd really appreciate
0: it. Yeah, we'll, we'll give you our contact information uh, in the show notes, of course. And uh, I think we're going to say it again here in just a moment with a conclusion. Because, ladies and gentlemen... And that's slime. it, and slimes. Sorry, Westy, didn't want to bust in that, uh, lose our guests' attention here. Okay, Um, But that's it for this episode of Slime Time. A little bit shorter than usual, but uh, we do want to thank Westy, the blue slime here, for joining us. Um, as we maybe kind of bullshitted our way through a possible Final Fantasy 2, Dragon Quest 4 connection that, in no way, shape, or form, exists. Thanks so much, Westy
1: Blue Slime, for taking some time out of your travels to join us. You can check him out on Facebook, Twitter,
0: and Instagram, at Westy Blue Slime.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I had a great slime.
0: You might have noticed that the only time we mention Patreon is when we say we don't use Patreon. We're just a couple longtime fans and a slime. That want to speak about the game series we know and love so much. So, if you have some money you would like to donate, consider sliding on over to the Dragon's Den at www.woodus.com/den and click on that button that says support this site. Woodus has owned and maintained the Dragon's Den fan site for over 20 years and I'm sure would appreciate any donation. Or you can use his Amazon affiliate link to make some purchases. I mean you're probably sitting at home not going out shopping. So shop on Amazon through his affiliate links, order uh, Dragon Quest 11s or any other Dragon Quest game he's got linked there. pretty much all the other ones that are still on Amazon. he's got affiliate links too. and he'll get a small fraction of the sale that will help support the den there.
1: And if you're an advertiser and you're looking for a cool new podcast to spend lots of ad revenue on, reach out to us at slimetimepodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can find us on Twitter at platym3 or at Celestrian or hit us up both simultaneously at dqslimetime.
0: Consider joining in the tons of Dragon Quest discussions at the forums over at uh, wudis.com slash forums. I know I'm there posting about uh, what I'm playing, and what other people are doing and just kind of what may be going on in the world of dragon quests this year. Um, also, we'd like to thank everyone that made this possible, like Brian, AKA Woodus, for his support of the series and this podcast and keeping the dragon Sense lights on for decades. Thanks to
1: Amanda LaPree and the Descendants of Verdric for allowing us to use their music for our podcast. Descendants of Verdric is a video game tribute band from Austin, Texas. If you'd like what you've heard, check them out in their most recent album Advent uh, at www.descendantsofverdric.com or on Twitter at d of D.Averdric, or go see their band leader Amanda LaPree live on tour as a guitarist through Andrew W.K. And uh, consider um, donating to Amanda's Patreon as well. Um, I know because of the whole coronavirus uh Outbreak. Um, a lot of bands aren't touring anymore, so you're going to see a lot of your favorite musicians uh, are actually canceling their live shows. So um, that's less revenue for them as well. So please consider uh, donating to uh, um, to Amanda's Patreon and uh,
0: and that's it. All right. Our thanks, as always, to Dwayne Bullock, our wonderful graphic artist, um, Dragon Quest fan, for making the awesome artwork for this podcast. Dwayne was on the original iteration of the Slime Time podcast, and he's been on a couple of our other episodes. You can check out more of his work at Dwayne Art on Instagram or his website at dwaynebullockart.bigcartel.com.
1: And if you're looking for more DQ podcasts, check out our earlier episodes on Dragon's Den, Anchor FM, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and more. Please also check out our fellow Dragon Quest podcasts available on Hour and Dragon Quest FM. Bye, everyone. BQ Slime Time sliming off. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay socially distant, everybody.
2: And don't forget to wash whatever it is your hands are.